2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions comments or concerns about spycast or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest email us at spycast at that's spycast at also if you like what you hear and even if you don't please take a minute and review us on itunes or whatever platform you might be listening we're always looking for ways to make spycast better and you can help We're joined today by David Kennedy, David Turk, and Howard Safer. David Kennedy is a curator of collections and exhibits at the U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas. His responsibilities include care of collections, objects, historical research, and integration of the collections into museum exhibits, both virtual and physical. He is the author of Guns of the Wild West, a photographic tour of the guns that shaped Our country's history, and the content advisor for Catherine Brever's The Story of Guns, How They Changed the World. David Turk has served as a historian in the United States Marshal Service since October 2001. He's only the second person to hold this position. His service with the agency dates from February 1990 and included six years with the agency's enforcement division. He's author of six books, including Forging the Star, the official modern history of the United States Marshal Service. And the remainder touch on various historical topics, including the outlaw Billy the Kid. In addition, he penned articles for numerous journals and magazines, including appearances in Police Chief and Wild West. And Howard Safer is currently the chairman of Safer Intelligence and Security. His abilities have been earned over a public and private sector career, including successful experience as police commissioner of New York City, director of operations for the United States Marshal Service, assistant director of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, fire commissioner of New York City, chairman and CEO of leading DNA forensic laboratory Bode Technology Group, chairman and CEO of a leading risk mitigation firm, and consultant to the chairman of ChoicePoint. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Good to be with you. So we're talking today about the hunt for Joseph Mengele, and and name may ring a bell to a lot of listeners. It certainly is something that if you've studied World War II history or the Nazis, that name has popped up. It's possible that a lot of people don't necessarily know why he was so wanted and so infamous. Um, Can you talk a little bit about where he lays down as one of the most notorious Nazi war criminals? Because it's more than just someone like Goebbels or someone like Himmler, he had an even more kind of vile background that made him more wanted, perhaps, than others might have been. I guess
3: probably the best way to describe him is by his nickname. His nickname was the Angel of Death. And he was a doctor at Auschwitz Concentration Camp. And as the Jews who were being moved from the various countries that they were being taken from by the Nazis were brought into the camp... He would stand at the railroad station, and he would say, you go to the left, you go to the right. Those who went to the left went to the gas chambers. Those who went to the right went to the internment camp. And then, as a doctor, he was interested in experimenting, particularly on Jews who were twins, and dwarfs, and people with abnormalities. And one of the reasons that he did that was he wanted to find out how people fared in ice cold how twins uh, were born so that he could create this Aryan race. It's estimated he probably killed not hundreds, but thousands of people. So when you think of a murderer of thousands of people, it's, it's amazing that he got to escape and lived as long as he did before he died peacefully, unfortunately, uh, in Brazil. So that's why we're so interested in Joseph of uh, Most people remember the, uh, Adolf Eichmann being snatched by the Israelis Mm -hmm. in Argentina. Well, Mengele was there, but they did not get him. So that's why he's such
2: an important fugitive. Well, if you talk about killing people, and this is, he's much more hands-on than a lot of the other Nazis, right? I mean, Hitler is the ringleader, and many of the people in the Nazi high command were certainly responsible for the six million Jewish dead, and, you know, way more than that when it comes to total number, when you add gypsies and everyone else, but Mengele was the one actually being in the dirt, hands-on killing people. Uh, maybe not him personally, but even probably in some cases it was. But It was him personally. Yeah, directly ordering the deaths of you, you, you versus whole groups of people.
3: Well, you know, there were many Nazis who ordered the deaths, but somebody who actually hands-on experimented with people. I mean, he would take twins and throw them in ice water for hours to see how long they survived. He would extract the ice out of twins to see the color and how he could create some genetic uh, formula to increase the master race. And he often said that he did not consider the Jews people. He just considered them things to experiment with. So when you have somebody that that's evil, that's why this investigation was right. so
2: important. Well, you brought up the Israelis and, and Adolf Eichmann, the idea of them hunting him down and grabbing him. Um, this sounds like a job for the Israelis. How did the United States marshal service? go after a Nazi war criminal. This wasn't somebody that broke out of San Quentin, or this wasn't somebody that we were chasing because they had been in the United States. This is someone who never set foot in the country. How did, you know, going back to the Wyatt Earp era, marshals, how did, how did that turn into an investigation of your organization?
3: Well, the way it came about was that the attorney general was visited by Senator Alphonse D'Amato, who was head of the Judiciary Committee at the time, and he had had hearings of twins who were survivors of Auschwitz and who had been survivors of Dr. Mengele. And at the end of the hearing, many of the witnesses said, the United States is doing nothing to find Joseph Mengele, who they believed to still be alive. So the attorney general uh, called in Rudy Giuliani and Jeff Harris, who were an associate attorney general and a deputy associate attorney general, and said, find some agency to go out and find And Rudy and uh, Giuliani and Jeff Harris knew that the Marshal Service had this great capability of finding fugitives, and I got called over to the Department of Justice. And at the Department of Justice, they asked me if I would be willing to put a task force together to find Joseph Magala. Well, my first reaction was, what crime did he commit in the United States? And they said, well, it's very important to the Attorney General that we find him. It is possible that he might have come into the United States, and when he did, he committed an immigration crime. So therefore, that's our jurisdiction. <laughs> Why not? Now, I personally was thrilled to be given this assignment because I'm Jewish. Okay. So,
2: and this you know, has to be the dream assignment for a marshal too, right, right. right here. the manhunt of all manhunts. Manhunt of all
3: manhunts. And so we put a task force together. And the task force that we put together involves some of the best fugitive hunters in the country. Back then, you know, computers weren't widely used in law enforcement. We got a computer dedicated only to the Mengele investigation. And we set about learning as much as we could about the Nazis, about the underground railroad that they had. And then we decided to go talk to people who were knowledgeable on Mengele.
2: Let me ask one of the Davids, either one of you, whichever one you decide makes more sense for this, because you'd mentioned, Howard, that the idea was that maybe he had been in the United States. Now, maybe it's a concocted way of getting some kind of indictment, but there were rumors, certainly even at the time, 1985, when you're talking about that, either he was in U.S. custody at one point, or even had been helped, kind of a Klaus Barbie situation, helped to get to South America by U.S. intelligence. Was this something that was seriously considered in the early investigation of trying to figure out was this the case or not?
4: Do you want to start with that? Go ahead. Well, there was you know, like, there was rumors, of course, but, uh, but uh, I don't particularly think it, there were strong rumors. I mean, you probably I know yourself, Mr. Safer, but I, I think there were just rumors to that effect. But they had to sort through literally what, thousands of leads. Uh, to to find that out yeah
0: and that's really one of the amazing things just like with any investigation for any fugitive uh somebody goes and uh, shoots a cop today you're going to have leads just get called in and if that person is gone if a person escapes justice for more than a few days you're going to get some really in some cases almost insane leads uh some of the leads that came in from uh, a number of people across the country regarding the Mengele case, everything from psychics who had visions that right. Mengele was hiding someplace. So there were people saw him. I saw him at, the, at this bar in Miami, Florida. I saw him One at the Wheaton. grocery store. What in Wheaton, Maryland. Wheaton, Maryland. There was, <laughs> there was, there was a, a, a there was There was a restaurant in Wheaton, Maryland. Yeah. Somebody saw him. They're sure that this was Mengele in this restaurant in Wheaton.
2: It. Well, there's a rumor, too, that he had gone into the United States to Houston to get medical treatment. I, I read that was one of kind of the key rumors. that
3: We, we did have that rumor. We discounted it fairly quickly. It, one one of the things about this investigation was how to focus on it. And the fact is that Mengele's movements were pretty well documented from the time that the war ended until the time he got to Brazil. The issue was, where was he? Right. Okay, so... One of the things that we said about doing was going to the experts on Nazi hunting. So we flew over to Vienna, met with Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, Simon Wiesenthal was was probably the world's number one uh, Nazi hunter. He had located li- literally hundreds of Nazi war criminals to help prosecute So I flew over with, uh, one of my supervisors, Dom Ferron, and met with uh, Simon Wiesenthal in Vienna. Uh, He did not have any current information, but what he did do was he gave me business cards. None of those business cards he wrote. Howard is my friend. (laughs) Help him Yeah. for Argentina, Paraguay, and uh, Brazil. And we used those cards when we went eventually to those countries to hunt for Mangala. Just to put it in context, this is a unfortunately a story of missteps and confusion by both the German government, the Israeli government, and the American government, because we had him in 1945. Right. In 1945, he was uh, detained by the U.S. military. They were, they were looking for literally thousands of war criminals. Uh, he was actually detained in his own name. And they figured it it was not the Joseph Mengele because he did not have a SS tattoo.
2: Well, that was the the thing, the whole idea of of the only way that they could have processed all these people as quickly as they did was looking for some indicators. And the indicator in this case was the blood type tattoo, the SS. So so what happened then was uh,
3: he actually went to work in farming in Germany— and, excuse me, in 1949, uh, he left from Genoa, and I believe he was helped probably by people like Aros Scorzani, who was led the Nazi Rail, uh, Underground Railroad. Right. And he went from Genoa to Argentina, and in Argentina, he actually lived a number of years as Joseph Mengele. In fact, one of the bizarre things in this case is he was a salesman in, in uh, Argentina, in Buenos Aires for the Mengele uh, Farm Equipment Company, his father's company.
2: Right. I mean, his family name is actually, well, I mean, it's like Deere, right? Like John Deere in many, it's it's the family itself was pretty well respected inside Germany, even though it sounds like from everything I've read that the family was probably the most complicit group in helping him escape and staying supported and in, in existing.
3: No question. In fact, I've been right outside the Mengele factory, which still exists today in Germany. And the fact is they supported him with money. Uh, He actually went back and visited his son, Ralph, in Switzerland uh, with a West German passport that he got by going to the West German uh, embassy in Argentina. got a, a birth certificate in the name of Joseph Mengele and a passport in the name of Joseph Mengele. So for years and years, this man... Uh, went from Argentina to Paraguay to Brazil, very
2: often using his own name. Right. Did he live for years in Paraguay under his own name as well?
3: He did. Yeah. But you have to understand that and we went to Paraguay in this investigation that the president of uh, Paraguay was a man named Strozner. Strozner was of German heritage, and Strozner was also very pro-German. Right. Uh, I, have, I literally have pictures of whole villages in uh, Paraguay, where people are wearing Nazi armbands well after the war. Right.
2: I mean, that's the whole idea about Argentina and Brazil. You know, Argentina especially, you've got a lot of people running around named Adolfo in Argentina who are second or third generation Germans. I mean, that, um, that had to have been when you started this investigation, like, yeah, he's, he's in Argentina or he's, he's in that area of the world.
3: Well, we, you know, in, we put together a three-country task force, Germany, Israel, and the United States, and we all agreed to do our own separate investigations, but to collaborate. And we met with the prosecutor in Germany, whose name was Hans Klein, who had this case for many years, and it went without resources. Uh, when we all started making noise about it, <laughs> right. suddenly he was very happy. He found resources, and he was very helpful. And when we met in, in Germany, uh, one of the things we, we said was, we need to follow the money. And it's not like the Germans had not done anything in this case. They had interviewed lots of people relative to Mengele, including somebody named Hans Seidelmeier. And Hans Seidelmeier was a accountant slash ma- manager. And they believed, and we believed as well, that if anybody was in contact with Mengele, it would have been Hans Seidelmeier.
2: I want to ask you, Howard, in a second about the, the working with other U.S. agencies, uh, whether it's CIA or DOD and state. But let's get some historical context before we chime into that. Let's talk about historically how the Marshall Service has worked with its partners, whether it's the FBI or other federal law enforcement, but also looking at foreign uh, national security based manhunts overseas and how they've worked traditionally with agencies like CIA or others um, in past um, investigations. Okay, uh, so you're referring to overseas or domestic? Both. I mean, kind of more more interagency cooperation across the Bay.
4: Well, I I think, uh, of course, you know, in in the witness security area, of course, we've had the the exchange of spies uh, that was quite well known, which Mr. Safer probably could refer to as well, uh, across the bridge, uh, which was, uh, you know, that was in the, what was it, 89, 87?
3: 89 and And, uh, in fact it was at the Glenicky Bridge between West Berlin and East Berlin and this is an interesting bridge in fact there was a movie made about it yeah
2: Abel and Powers were uh,
3: Colonel Abel's and uh, Francis Gary Powers were exchanged there but the interesting thing that I found and some of the people in this room like Al uh, Batney were there with me was that it was a bridge used only for one thing spy (laughs) exchanges it had a, a galvanized fence in the middle. The West German side was beautiful, painted, paved. The East German side was rusted, grass growing up, but we did two spy exchanges there, and the Marshal Service was picked because they knew, we knew how to do those things. Right.
4: Among other things, uh, of course, our extraditional responsibilities put us in cooperation. It always has been. Uh, it's not as much of a, uh, an espionage uh, sort of activity, but uh, you know that, that has also been part of it. Uh domestically, uh, probably one of the most interesting historical stories uh, occurred in the War of 1812. It was part of the Battle of New Orleans uh, in 1815. It didn't take place on foreign soil, it took place on our own when the British had already actually signed a peace treaty.
2: Right, the war was ca- technically over by the time Andrew Jackson— it was already yeah.
4: over. Yeah. And uh, the British decided to take one last swipe at us in New Orleans. And Andrew Jackson uh, was taking uh, the overland route. Uh, and he had to uh, employ, luckily, we had a, a very sharp U.S. marshal in New Orleans by the name of Peter Duplay. Uh We were very, very fortunate. Uh, he had a nice little spy network locally uh, that happened to be pirates. Uh, one of them was, uh, uh, you probably well known, as uh, the Lafitte Brothers. Yep. Uh, and one was in jail, held by us, and we literally let him out of jail. Um, uh, that was part of the deal uh, to... Uh, let him uh, spy on the British to uh, allow the best uh, movements of that British ship, and uh, we actually chose the ground, you know, as a part of that. It wasn't the best ground, but you know, the Chalmette is where they ended up fighting the Battle of New Orleans. We had actually were better provisioned at that point. Um, they lost uh, the battle; is well known quite quite badly, partly because of maneuvering. Uh, the British maneuvers were. Uh, uh, didn't improve that but uh, that was a no small part thanks to that spy network uh so uh we did have that of course we have sequestered juries and you know that is somewhat on you know spy work espionage mm-hmm. work we have that sort of thing uh including uh the famous jimmy hoffa case you know we had uh numerous uh, sequestered juries there and guarding the witnesses um in which uh I could go on to that, but I won't.
2: Unless you're (laughs) going to tell us where he is. No, uh, but I
4: can tell you one of our deputies got in hot water for taking Hoffa to a restaurant, one of his favorite restaurants near Detroit, and uh, got in quite hot water for it. Uh, Somehow he uh, coerced him into going to one of those restaurants and and got in quite big trouble for it, but uh, things of that nature. But uh, in the Civil War, we uh, we had to— uh, do several uh, spy bus for copperheads well, mm-hmm. no southern sympathizers you know during that particular point so uh, those are some some historical tangents so.
0: and, I, and I think more from a modern perspective and this is coming in as essentially an outsider to the Martian service at the Marshall Museum I'm not a an employee of the service but we work hand in hand and we and we get a lot of information from them and we're very fortunate to have the relationship we do Uh, Coming as an outsider, domestically, the Marshal Service is very much a force multiplier for city, county, state, federal, law enforcement. The resources they're able to apply to cases and the participation and the work that they receive, uh, the assistance they receive from those same organizations to get their respective missions done. When it goes to foreign involvements, I think what a lot of people miss is when they think of national police, they think of the FBI But when you look at most other nations, their national police organizations are much more closely organized and have the responsibilities similar to what the Marshal Service has in the United States. So they're very much similar organizations, similar missions, and viewing it as an outsider, I get to see how those same organizations – that's one of the reasons why they work so well together with the Marshal Service is because they're essentially doing the same job for the different nations, and they work – uh, much more on a level basis rather than being this is in the way of the FBI, almost an internal intelligence organization, law enforcement organization that does investigative work, or the CIA doing external intelligence gathering and operations.
2: Well, this investigation, you've already talked about it including multiple countries, Germany and Israel, and certainly you're dealing with South American countries as you're moving through them. What other organizations you have to think, obviously, the Department of State may have been involved since you're trampsing about The world. But did you draw upon the resources of the intelligence community? Did you talk to CIA? Did you work closely with those that had maybe the information, the sources overseas that you may not have had?
3: Absolutely. Of course, relative to the Department of State, we try to keep them out of it as much as possible. (laughs) Department of State is about diplomacy. Catching fugitives is not about diplomacy. But we did work closely with the CIA. Uh, At the time, Claire George... Uh, was the deputy director of operations. Uh, Claire and I became very good friends and worked on a number of operations together. In this operation, Claire alerted his chiefs of station in Argentina, Brazil, uh, and Paraguay to help us. And they did help us. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't help us catch them. Right. But they did provide us with a lot of information. And, in fact, we went to uh, Buenos Aires and went to the place where, and this is an interesting part of the story, uh, where Adolf Eichmann had been seized by the Mossad in 1960. And what happened then, and most people don't realize, when the Mossad went to Argentina, they were looking to catch two people, not just uh, Eichmann, they were looking for Mengele. And here's where history has two separate stories, depending on who you're listening to. One story has Eichmann living in his apartment building a few blocks away, and when he heard about uh, Mengele living in an apartment building a few blocks away, and when he heard about Eichmann, he then fled to Paraguay. Uh, The other story is that he had already gone to Paraguay. Mm. But uh, interestingly enough, through history, uh, right after the Mossad grabbed Eichmann, the appetite for Israelis catching Uh, Nazi war criminals waned and even though they had an opportunity to catch Mengele and knew where he was uh, The people at the top of the Israeli government said we have to worry about surviving About the Arab Wars about our economy. So
2: pretty much that investigation in Israel went dormant during those years even as successful as the 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 apprehension of Eichmann was, for the Israelis, there was some geopolitical issues involved with that. I mean, they basically had violated the sovereignty of a foreign nation.
3: Well, so has the Marshall Service yes. often. <laughs> you know, the, the, the fact is that U.S. law, and this is what's important in this investigation, there's a Supreme Court decision, decision called Kerr Fersby. And basically what the Supreme Court said is that U.S. law enforcement officers can travel anywhere in the world, violate the laws of any country in the world to apprehend a fugitive, as long as they don't violate his civil rights or torture him or, you know, do, do those kind of things. But when he's returned to the court that holds the warrant, the judge is only going to ask why you were not here when you were supposed to be. And, you know, the Marshal Service, you know, we, we, we were able to apprehend Ed Wilson, a rogue CIA agent who murdered people. We were able to, uh, basically kidnapped Juan Balesteros out of Honduras in violation of Honduran law, but he killed K- Camarena, a US DEA agent. So, you know, those niceties are not important right. when you're in fugitive hunting. That's why we try and keep state at arm's length. Right,
2: exactly. <laughs> they
3: probably don't like that very much. Uh, I've been at a few uh, hearings <laughs> where state department wanted to know why we did what we did. But the important thing is that dangerous, important fugitives are returned, and nobody does it better than the U.S. Marshal Service.
2: How long, when you were brought into the investigation, did you think you might be able to catch him alive? So I know that there, there was the understanding, or at least the belief, that there was a body that could have been Mengele since very early in the investigation. But did you believe that there's a chance that he was still, that that wasn't him, that you could still probably catch him alive? I was hopeful from the beginning,
3: that we could catch him alive. And I was incredibly disappointed when we found, you know, his remains. Because basically, he did these horrible things. One of the worst human beings that ever walked the earth. And then he lived a good number of years doing what he wanted to do and then died like any grandfather would die, you know, with uh, the people he was living with, grandkids, while swimming of a stroke. You know, that's the... That would, for me... That was the worst possible
2: outcome. Right. I wanted to see him in the dock. Well, one thing that's interesting is in any kind of investigation like this, and this is true when it comes to intelligence analysis and everything else, is even if you had caught someone you thought might have been Joseph Mengele, there's so many difficulties associated with identifying the person. Because it's not like today right. where you have a digital photograph that you can age You know, well, using DNA. a computer. Yeah, DNA certainly helped. That right. didn't come but until much later.
3: DNA didn't come until 1984. We can, you know, this is another interesting part. When we found him, the remains, and after we had put together a marshal service, put together a forensic team, uh, chief medical examiner of of Delaware, forensic dentist, forensic anthropologist, you know, all of the kind of people who would do the forensic examination. And they said it was a 99.9% probability that this was Joseph Mengele. Israelis had a forensic team, did the same thing. Germans had a forensic team, did the same thing. Okay. Yet, when I called Simon Wiesenthal and told him, he said, Could, couldn't be him. I still to this day have no idea why he took that mm-hmm. attitude. When I told Senator DeMottle, Senator DeMottle ordered me not to release information that this was Joseph Engel. And I said, Senator, we're going to do it. And I did, and he didn't like me much because of it. But then, to get to the end here of identification, in 1992, his son Roth gave a DNA sample. We matched it against the remains, and there was no right. doubt whatsoever. The, this was the bones of Joseph Mengele.
2: Well, even going back before that, before you actually had a body to compare it to, the problem is associated with the fact that there was no modern photograph of him. I think 1958 was the last known photograph. Right. And then you talk about the, the fingerprints. There was a lot of discussion about whether or not those were actually Mangala's fingerprints. And then with the body itself, this is interesting for me as kind of someone who looks at historic documents and try to figure out. It's possible his medical records were wrong because of a disease that he thought he may have had. He may not have had something different. And there's a lot of it. To,
3: well, you know. see, I disagree with that. Okay. Uh, we got the medical records from the German Documentation Center. One of the things the Germans did meticulously yeah. was document everything. And said so that he had osteomyelitis, and there were signs of that in the body, okay? Uh, they did everything from measuring hat size. Uh, we have these photos, these photographs of them putting uh, Wolfgang Gerhardt's hat on the skull to, to measure it. Now, th- there was no question in my mind that this was Joseph Mengele. The question in my mind was why Simon Wiesenthal didn't want to admit it. Right. That maybe It's part of what I found, unfortunately, with the Israeli part of this investigation. They were not very active in it. The Germans were. And, you know, my my sense that maybe holding the specter of Nazi war criminals being out there was important politically because the biological biological clock was ticking.
2: Right. These people were going to be dead. Right. Eventually they were going to die of old age, unfortunately, like, like Mengele does. Was there any concern? And I certainly have read this in the DOJ report. Was there any concern that Mangalo through all of his medical training and through the you know how much he knew about the body, I mean, this is so law and order kind of question, but it popped up in the DOJ report of finding a body that would have had similar characteristics to his and kind of faking his own death because he had in the past faked his own death and his family had been complicit in right. pushing those rumors going back to the 1940s.
3: It, it was possible, but we didn't have any evidence of that. But speaking of medical, uh, he was actually interviewed by the Argentine police because he was allegedly doing abortions uh, while he was in Buenos Aires as a doctor. And they let him go. Hmm. We'll be right back after this.
1: The IT world used to be simpler.
2: So let me ask the question, and this can be across the board. Reading this, it feels, I mean, we're using counterfactual hindsight in this case, and we're kind of judging those in the 1940s the kind of way that we would treat it and would say, if I was there, I would do it different. It's like, you know, if I had met Hitler one way out when he was 20 years old, I would have punched him out. Well, we had him in 1945. We had Joseph Mengele in 1945 in American custody. Should we have had him then? Should we have caught him then? Or is it unfair to second guess? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. You know, think about
3: Germany in nineteen forty-five. Thousands of displaced millions of displaced persons. Thousands of people who are all swearing they never served in in the SS, and if they were, they were in the Wehrmacht, then they just followed orders. You know, very confused times. Certainly there were mistakes made, but they're understandable mistakes. we had laser focus on one individual. They were dealing with thousands.
2: And this is another hindsight question. I believe Mengele died in 1979. Yes. If you had been sent in in 78, would you have gotten them? Probably. Yeah. I believe that our people are so good, and we had such help from both
3: Nazi hunters and the intelligence community that I believe we absolutely would have found them because there were many, many documents. I mean, the Israelis knew where he was way before he died. They just chose not to yeah. go get him
2: was this did this set a precedent or at least create a model for overseas relationships and cooperation because I know and even you know people know that maybe it's know the story of El Chapo and others that have been fugitives, not necessarily of the United States, but there's been cooperation across the board between the Marshall Service and others. Was the Mengele investigation used as a model for how to do this kind of thing in the future? It was partly used, but, you know, the, the fact is the Marshal
3: Service has great relations overseas. You know, their witness security program is the best in the world. Uh, we have shown many countries how to put a witness security program together. Uh, we've had representatives at Interpol uh, since early 80s. So, you know... Th- you know, it, it's a cliche, but the truth is the service is always known uh, to fugitives. You can run, but you can't hide. And that is could not be true today. Uh, nobody arrests more fugitives than the U.S. Marshal Service, and nobody does it better.
2: Well, you, you mentioned WITSEC, and I think that you know, actually several of you have. There might be an interesting concept with the idea of spies ending up dead all over the place now. I mean, is that do you see that as a concern moving forward about people who— I mean, the the Skripal one in, in Europe was an interesting one. The idea in, in the UK was this was someone who had been traded, right? Right, someone who's supposed to be off limits, and kind of now it's open season to a respect. Do you see someone as you know a group as good as the Marshall Service and keeping people alive being brought in more?
3: Let me give you some historical perspective, which I don't think has ever been made public before. When I was chief of witness security at the Marshall Service, Claire George and I sat down and talked about the Marshall Service taking over the CIA defector program because from an intelligence agency's perspective, you get a defector, you get a spy, you bleed him of all his intelligence, and then he becomes a pain in the butt. Right. And very often they go off on their own and are subject to the kind of things that we've seen in Europe. So we were planning to move the defector program to the Marshal Service, and then unfortunately Iran-Contra came along and everything, all deals were off right. the table. So, uh, I think that's something that's probably worth revisiting, because mm-hmm. you know nobody does witness security better than the motion Service. Uh, I can tell you that they have never lost a witness. And so that's people,
2: extraordinary. Like I mean, I, 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 some people will
3: dispute that, like Geraldo Rivera did, and I sued him in federal court and won because he claimed that we lost somebody, and we never have.
2: Well, you'd think, I mean, the, the way to keep people defecting is to guarantee their safety, right? And if all of a sudden people end up dead, well, then that makes it really problematic. And so the marshals would be, to me, the perfect...
4: The, the deal is, if you follow the rules of the program and you don't get kicked out, you know, that's... Right. You know, then you're safe. But, you
3: know, those who leave the program, and they're on their own. Well, that's an important point. You know, the the, the fact is... Witnesses, whether criminal witness or intelligence witnesses, take a lot of care and feeding. And most intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies are not equipped to do that. Right. The service has developed a program which basically from the day you come in and until you die, peacefully hopefully, uh, you are taken care of by the service. And, and that's why they do so well.
2: It, can that be a model moving into the future? I mean, I, you talked about maybe this doesn't happen tomorrow where witness protection or of, of defected spies or others is taken over. Um, do you see the agencies kind of following your model? I would of, hope right? so.
3: I, I, I would hope so because it's going to be in this digital age. It is so much harder to hide somebody. Right. You know, you can go on Google and in 10 minutes, I'll know more about you than you ever wanted me to know. You know, the the privacy saying that ship has sailed. So what we need to do is we need to have an organization that can protect you from both digital intrusion as well as physical. And you know the service is equipped to do that. You need a dedicated group, right? And that's what the Marshal Service
2: has. Well, in, in many respects, as you're talking about it, it's it's basically in a counterintelligence investigation. You're basically you're trying to prevent the bad guys, of course, from learning about. I mean, that's. I never. I've thought about it a lot of the digital revolution from an espionage perspective and from an intelligence counterintelligence. But keeping someone alive really makes a lot of sense when and, it comes to that
3: And you have to be prepared to move them again,
2: right? You know. Uh, uh, I'll tell you a very quick story that
3: I, I found fascinating. When I was chief of witness security, we got a call one day from a protected witness who said he had just been elected sheriff <laughs> in, in an organization. Here's a guy with a big criminal background. And what happened that's amazing. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and what happened is the people who were running against him hired an ex FBI agent who discovered that he was a protected witness. So suddenly, this guy is in huge danger. And you need an organization that can pick him up, move him and relocate him, give him a new identity. And that's what the Marshal Service does. Nobody else does that.
2: On the other hand, let me ask you this question. Historically, and this could be for anyone, were there people in South America doing that for Nazi war criminals? Absolutely. On the other other Mm -hmm. side of witness protection for them.
3: Otto Skorzeny, who was known as Hitler's Commando, he's the guy who tried to rescue Mussolini.
2: Yeah, Is the, well, the one with the scar that right, that scar. basically Blofeld was based on, in right. retrospect. Yeah. Well,
3: Otto Scorzini moved to Costa del Sol, where he unfortunately also died at at old age, but he ran this whole organization. When you look at Mengele, Mengele lived with families who knew who he was, and they helped facilitate moving him, documentation, looking for threats, counterintelligence, mm-hmm. as, as you say. So, absolutely. Uh, you know, hundreds of Nazi war criminals didn't end up in Argentina by mistake. Right. You know, the Perons were very pro-Nazi. Right. I think Scorzani
2: actually worked for Juan Peron as like a personal bodyguard yes. in many respects. In fact,
3: one of the first things I did uh, when this case was assigned to us was I read Adolf Scorzani's book.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's an interesting concept, too, the idea of kind of getting inside of the version of you on the other side, right? Because you're... You, you, When you were the head of WITSEC, you're kind of thinking about how do I keep people from finding out where my guys are. Now you're the opposite. You're kind of attacking your version of you overseas is how do I get through that person trying to protect other people's identities.
3: We always taught this and continue to teach this in fugitive hunting. you got to crawl into the guy's mind and where he's going to go and what he's going to do. And that's the way you find him. You know, we did that in uh, – looking for uh, Christopher Boyce. Mm-hmm. Christopher Boyce, for those who don't know who he was, was probably one of the most damaging spies uh, in the history of the United States. He sold all the codes to our satellites, our spy satellites, yep. to the Russians. And amazingly, he did it by throwing a rock through the U.S. Embassy in Mexico, saying, I have important information for the Russians. And the KGB said, come on down. Right. But we were able to catch him, and it took a number of years by thinking about what he would do and where he would go.
2: It's one thing when you're getting inside the head of a spy, or when you get inside the head of someone who's murdered people and broken out of prison. It's got to be a very different thing as a Jewish person to get inside the head of Joseph Mengele and try to think about where he might, what decisions he might make. How, how problematic was that kind of from a personal perspective?
3: Well, personally, it, it wasn't because I used the tradecraft that I knew. And fortunately, I had great people mm-hmm. working with me. Who were great fugitive hunters, and you know, fortunately, I was in the position where I could make this a real priority. It was a priority of the Attorney General to make Senator D'Amato go away, but it was a priority of the Marshal Service to show that we could find anybody. Right, because that th- this was at a time when we had just regained the fugitive uh, jurisdiction from the FBI, which made them quite unhappy, but. We needed to show that we could be better than anybody else. Today, there's no question about it. But back then, there was concern. Could we find major fugitives?
2: So Mengele was found. I don't care alive or dead because Mengele was found. I know, obviously, it matters. But in the history of the Marshall Service, where does this rank as like top people? It's got to be really high to the top. I mean, I think if he had been found alive, it would be number one by far. I mean, you've got a guy who is is so above and beyond the average common person that's being hunted down. But alive or dead, finding Mengele has to rank pretty high among the bad guys the marshals have hunted down.
4: Well, put it this way, when uh, there was a parade magazine that came out with our 15 most wanted you know, story by Peter Moss in 85, uh, they had some of the first, you know, they were hyping up our, our our fifteen most wanted program, which which Mister Safer was instrumental in, in getting started. Uh, there was a picture there of Joseph Mengele with a big X through it. You know that kind of tells you he was he was a big uh, that was a big find. There was no case like this before or since uh, with that kind of historical. Uh, in, you know integrity in it. I mean, it just it, there was nothing like it. Um, I I can't think of except for maybe the Alcatraz case. I can't think of any other case of its import.
2: And as far as the ones that didn't catch, right? Frank, what's his name? Um, Frank Morris right, and yeah. the two Anglin brothers. I only know it that's because of the a, live movie, right? yeah, a live case, right? Yeah, still live However,
4: that doesn't have the kind of impact socially that the Mengele right. case had for the very reasons Mr. Safer had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, like, you know, I have Jewish roots as well. So it, it does have, you know, great social importance.
2: But I think even going back to the, the 19th century and some of the, the big, you know, the villains of the wild West and other places that this would certainly rank up there as oh, far yes. as in, the, yeah.
4: in, in our modern history though, if you take a look at our right. modern history and of course, you know, going back and, uh, you know, we have a 200 now 30 year history coming our way this year. You know, so it's uh, yeah. You, we were talking uh, if you're going to go back and talk about Wyatt Earp and Billy the Kid right. and, and all of that. Yes, it it's yeah. still up there. It still holds.
2: A lot of what we've been doing in the last 15 20 years in intelligence has been manhunting. Actually, goes back into the 1990s. Talk about the Balkans, where it was just a laundry list right. of war criminals that we we're chasing. This is one of the first major American federal government manhunts that's global, right? How much of a model was this for what we've done since? I mean, did we forget some of it because I we had to kind of learn it again in Bosnia a little bit? But the the parameter set of interagency cooperation and working overseas and hunting down an individual, this is really kind of setting the standard for doing that.
3: It is. Uh- We were very fortunate that at the time we had great relations with just about every federal agency. We've always had great relations with state and local agencies. So, you know, we we had an army of thousands that we could look to, to help. But, you know, the reality is we dedicated specific resources to this case. So it's not like, you know, most marshals are looking for lots of fugitives. Right. We put together a group that had one mission, and that mission was to find Joseph Mengel. We took a computer, which was like, the, for the Marshall Service, new equipment. Oh, in 1985, yeah. Right back then, and we dedicated it to following up thousands and thousands of elites. So, you know, I think it set the model, but I think it was, an you know, I, I often tell people timing is very important, and this timing was perfect because... From the top, from the attorney general, right down to us at the Marshal Service, there was never a question of resources. Right. And, of course, you can be the best fugitive hunter in the world if you don't have the backing of the political machine and the dollars and people to do it,
2: you're not going to be successful. If people want to know more about the history of the Marshal Service without buying all the books that you've written, um, (laughs) they should do that anyway. They should do that anyway. But if they want a quick... You know, is there, is there a good website? Does the Marshal Service website do a pretty good job in talking about the Marshal's history? Yeah, we, it's pretty
4: comprehensive. Uh, we're, we're in a course of uh, redoing it now, uh, but it's uh, www.usmarshals.gov. Www, uh, um, and it's got a pretty comprehensive history section. Uh, also, uh, the, the U.S. Marshals, and Dave can, can tell you about that.
0: Yeah, the uh, United States Marshals Museum, we're going to be opening up September 24th, 2019. That's the 230th anniversary of the signing of the Judiciary Act of 1789, when the Marshals Service was created, uh, being signed into law by uh, President George Washington. It was the very first thing that the Senate, U.S. Senate did during the very first U.S. Congress. Hmm. Uh, it was, so it was, it's the oldest agency that was created by the government, and we get a chance to tell that story. Uh, the building's going to be opening up. We're going to be—the biggest element of that uh, initially is going to be our Hall of Honor uh, recognizing the uh, many people who have died in the line of duty. Uh, right now, our unofficial list is looking at about 370 people over the uh, history of our nation. Uh, the reason why we're in Fort Smith is because a third of that number died in what's now Oklahoma, half of them coming out of the, uh, court, the district, U.S. District Court, uh, for Western Arkansas. And the people who came out of there, this, if you ever think of True Grit, if you ever think of Judge Parker, Mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about. That's, that's, but that's only a third of what we're going to be telling in the way of a story. We have an entire 230 year history that we'll be discussing. And that 230-year history includes uh, from immediately following the foundation of our country and the acceptance of the United States Constitution all the way up to events which are taking place today and now. And so we get to tell a really exciting story. It involves everything from the Whiskey Rebellion to the civil rights uh, movement across our country. We get to talk about the Vietnam War riots. We get to talk about... Uh, how our country was being formed as we moved west across the nation and how the marshals were the only law enforcement in the frontier west. We get to talk about uh, what the job was that they did in other parts of our nation, whether you're running WITSEC, running the uh, j the Prisoner Transport System. There's so many aspects of our nation's history and our nation's operations. If it was not for the marshal service, we would not have the nation operating the way it does.
2: I, did I read that you were heavily involved in creating Con Air? That's true. So, so, for our our twenty to thirty year old men out there are going really. So, uh, yeah. A terrible um, movie, though. Terrible, no, right. terrible movie. Well, that's a, I, I I get the pop culture questions all the time about spy movies, and if you think about it, there's a lot of you know from the Fugitive to U.S. Marshals. will focus on the Fugitive to Con Air, uh, and there's even that the show. I was almost going to make a joke about there's a bunch of former spies and mobsters in Albuquerque because you've relocated all of them to to New Mexico (laughs) because there's that TV show about that. Is there good martial pop culture that's pretty representative of what the service is?
3: Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Uh, I I think the great pop culture is the sting operations that we ran.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're so good. They're they're absolutely might as well be, but yeah. But I,
3: but, but what's important to realize is we're the ones who did it first. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we literally put together a program where we sent out letters to the last known address of 300 fugitives, telling them that they had won.
2: That was here in D.C., yeah. wasn't it? The, yeah. the Washington. They, like they the, had, the, yep. they, they had one. Same time frame. Such so, a good story. Can you tell it, please? please.
3: They, they had one eight a ticket to a Washington-Cincinnati NFL football game and the opportunity to win a ticket and an all-expense-paid vacation to the Super Bowl. And what they had to do is they had to show up at the Washington Convention Center on a Sunday with two forms of identification, right, and they would get these tickets and it would be a party. So what we did is we dressed one of our deputies up as the San Diego Chicken, We had all of our, this is probably sexist today, but we had all of our nice-looking female deputy marshals in short shorts and top hats with balloons. As they checked in, we looked at their ID. There was guys at a computer in another room checking to make sure the warrants were valid. The young lady deputies would hand them a balloon to keep their hands busy. They would escort them up to this big room. We had a large TV showing last year's Super Bowl, we had our chief of enforcement louie mckinney in the top hat and tails and he said welcome gentlemen we have a surprise and when he said surprise the back door of this room opened and our swat team of our special operations group came in with long rifles arrested everybody and put them on the bus the interest there's two interesting things about that day one as the bus was leaving one of the criminals shouted out, do we still get to go to the Super Bowl? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously not a master criminal. (laughs) But out of those 300 letters, we arrested 101 fugitives at a cost of $22,000 per fugitive, which is amazingly reasonable. And then one one last part of it, while I'm there watching this great thing going on, a lawyer shows up with a court order to cease and desist because it was the beginning of cable TV. We represented ourselves as a cable TV station. Mm-hmm. He represented ESPN, which was just starting. And so we were encroaching on their rights. So he said, oh, I'm very happy that
2: you're not a TV station. He says, I'll be going. I says, no, you won't. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're not going anywhere. I think that they just made a documentary about that, if I believe. Yeah. I, I know I saw Actually, that. Actually, two. two. Uh,
3: NFL, NFL Films did one and yeah. ESPN did
2: one. And that was incredibly well. I, I For about half an hour, I bought into it. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, what the hell is going on here? So if you haven't had it, maybe it's online. You can hunt it down. It's, it is. It's on YouTube. Actually. What an extraordinary story, too. This is brilliant.
0: And, and as an outsider, again, uh, watching that and seeing the people who were involved in that whole operation were the best and brightest of the Marshal Service, that time frame. Two of the people involved ended up becoming uh, acting director and, and a director of the Marshal Service. First African American, first female. Uh, You have the person in charge of special operations group was the deputy. So many other deputies were striving to be at that level. Uh, He ended up actually uh, being the marshal who lost his life at Ruby Ridge. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Degan. It's just there are just like so many people. You could just start running down the list of everybody who was involved there. That through the remainder of the eighties into the nineties and even into the two thousands uh... were people who are really driving the organization and making the marshal service what it is today
3: and, and i want your listeners to understand that you know all of the things we talked about are important and some of them sound like fun but this is a very dangerous job right uh, we lost a deputy last week uh... serving a warrant and so you know, just a little sobering thought that the men and women who do this are really committed and they're the people who run into danger, right. while other people are running the other way.
2: Well, for, for uh, you know people out there who listen to this, we're very focused on the intelligence side of things, but there's an extraordinary amount of intelligence collection analysis when it comes to hunting down a fugitive. When it comes to, it's the, it's almost an amalgamation of police work and intelligence work, where it's not just a straightforward investigation of trying to catch the bad guy. You already know who the bad guy is absolutely. It's finding the bad guy. It's very much like what we're doing when we're hunting terrorists overseas or or bad guys in the Balkans. It's using intelligence network sources collection methods from signals intelligence and other things to find a person you already know is out there and already know is guilty
3: and and i will tell you that during my tenure and i'm sure during the tenure of the people who are there now we often come across intelligence that is important to the intelligence community and that's why we have liaison Mm -hmm. with all of the three-letter agencies uh so that we can provide that intelligence and i often see uh good things happening with our intelligence agencies, and I say to myself, I know where that came from.
2: <laughs> well, I imagine that goes in both directions, Absolutely. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you taking the time. We kind of got off uh, of the Mengele conversation, but I think it was really worth it because kind of talking, it, most people out there who listen to this podcast are really almost primarily focused on... You know, the CIAs and the DIAs and the NSAs of the world. It's rare that we get a chance to talk about an agency like the Marshall Service that's doing the same kinds of work, at least from a critical thinking and problem solving perspective, that these intelligence, you know, capital I intelligence agencies are doing. And I think it's clear, particularly in the case of both witness protection and the counterintelligence perspective and hunting down fugitive from the intelligence gathering perspective and analysis, that it's so, so similar. And so let me end it this way, because there are a lot of people who are thinking about careers. They're in grad school. They're listeners who are early career professionals. Maybe they're not in the agency they like. Maybe they're like, I just wanted to get in the door and I'm looking for my career. How do you get into the Marshall service to do this kind of work? Is it is it is there career advice that you could provide? Well,
3: there is there's a test. Yeah. But, you know, that's just uh, that's just gets you in the door. Right. Th- then you have to be interviewed and see it if you have the kind of, not just intelligence, but the kind of passion that the majority of people in the service have. This is a relatively small agency. You know, compared, you know, I had 41,000 cops in the NYPD. Uh, I guess there's four, four or 5,000 marshals in the world. So you need an elite group of people who are committed and dedicated and, and willing to make some sacrifices. Right. Because, you know, you, very often you have to move your family for new assignments. Uh, very often you don't get the kind of recognition that a lot of other people get. So it has to be in your blood.
2: Is there is there a new kind of? Um, is it not like necessarily like going to become a, a, an FBI agent, where it's like become a lawyer? Or get a psychology degree, or learn some languages. Is there something that makes them? Is it now more be digitally proficient? Is it more languages? You need, you know.
4: No, nowadays uh, military, okay. uh, you know, does help. Any kind of military uh, service does uh, help now. Uh, now they are starting to hire more uh, in the operational fields, and we are starting to grow a little bit past that time. Uh, but it's it's not. Uh, we're still small. But uh, we're we're growing a little bit. Uh, but it's it's comparatively speaking, uh, Mr. Safer is absolutely correct. We're still very small, and uh, there is strength in that. In that, uh, we work with others right. that way, and there is uh, a strength in that.
3: Being a former marine, I equate martial service to the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. They're the people. There aren't a lot of them. Right, but you know, there's that old saying in Texas: Rangers one riot, one ranger, well, watchful service, live up to that.
0: And I, w- I would very definitely agree with what uh, Commissioner Safer just said. Um, I've been in and around the military. I've been around law enforcement. I've studied a lot of history and current operations, military and law enforcement. And I had the pleasure and the opportunity to uh, spend a day at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, watching a bunch of, like I think of it now as kids going through uh, the Marshals Service training. And they are some of the most impressive young people I have met. To a one, they are smart. They're well-spoken. They are willing to go above and beyond on physical challenges, on mental challenges. They have a very difficult job that they are learning to do in order to not, not just protect the courts, not just protect our country. They're also there to do the unenviable job of protecting the rights of the people they have in their custody. Mm-hmm. While protecting themselves and and it's just it's the the mental gymnastics that they have to go through in order to do their job while they're going through one of the most physically demanding jobs I've seen is just mind boggling.
4: The split second decision making they have to make and, you know, it requires, you know, that education as well. So, well,
2: well, I mean, I think that's as you've been talking about, this is not your safety school, right? This is not if I can't get into the FBI, I'm going to join the marshals. You absolutely have to be dedicated to wanting to do this job yeah and it's, it's mental it's physical
0: it is very much like to the comment about being like the marine corps it's very much uh marine corps or any special operations branch of any military that's essentially kind of in my mind what you are looking at this is not county police department work this is steps and levels above
2: David Kennedy, David Turk, and Commissioner Howard Safer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on Spycast. I love these conversations because it it is certainly intelligence related, but it's it's a nice breath of fresh air from kind of what we do normally do to get a chance to talk about a cool story like this. So, really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Spycast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about Spycast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week.
3: cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.